I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles, either ones that you brought with you or that black Bible in front of you there in the pew, to Exodus 32. That's page 72 in the pew Bible there. I think it's one of the most well-known chapters in the book of Exodus because of the circumstances that we find uh, in chapter 32. Maybe Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments uh, are, are a little bit more popular, more well-known, but uh, something happens here with God's chosen people, the ones He has delivered, protected, provided for, has gone before in the wilderness. They haven't been on this journey for very long, uh, really uh, you know, a few weeks. Um, and something happens here in chapter 32 that is actually, it's just a shock to the system, to all generations who would hear of this uh, event, uh, things that took place here. Um, incident really referred to over the course of redemptive history, not as a happy memory uh, in the life of a people, but warning against sin, the idolatry that is so often propping up uh, the sin of God's people. So Moses is on the mountain. He's receiving instruction from the Lord. Uh, this is the Lord's enduring word. It was carried His authority uh, to His people. And while this is going on, meanwhile, back at the camp, as it were, uh, the people are growing restless. They're growing impatient. Um, so there's Moses, you know, spiritual high on the mountain. The people are anything but. They're in this spiritual low point at the base of Mount Sinai. Um, so we're going to look about half, at about half of this chapter here, uh, reading the first 14 verses of chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly, out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, 
to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. The prophet tells us that we're like the grass of the field uh, that withers and is gone, but it's his word that endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, we do praise you for you have spoken in a way that we can understand. You have lisped to us, given us your word. We might know how to love you, serve you. Lord, as we read a text like this, sometimes we don't even know what to think, or how to think and process this. So we ask your help now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through this word, perhaps a new word for some, familiar for others. Work your truth into our hearts. And we pray confidently, knowing that you are working your word to accomplish it in us. Lord, we do thank you that as a perfect heavenly Father, you discipline those that you love. That they might seek your face. May we seek your face all the more through this warning, through this word. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last couple of weeks, you've likely heard or read about some of these tragedies, the mass murders, one in Ohio, one in uh, Texas, the El Paso area. Um, I think there's, there's more this last week, you know, different knife attacks in California, Chicago. and I mean, this type of thing is happening right now even as we gather in this place. People are physically dying at the hands of evil and hatred. That's something we need to grieve over. We really need to weep with those who weep. Every time this happens, we hope we're lifting our hearts in prayer to the Lord. Because every time this happens, it generates more fear, more paranoia among uh, the general population. I mean, you, you see it on the streets as, as signs are being held up. Maybe you saw this in the news, whatever uh, news source you may take in, but usually directed at leaders, national leaders, signs just saying, do something. And you hear what's underneath this cry. You know, Stop this. Help us. Save us from this. But, but what I find, what we, we should find particularly alarming in this, is that in all of the discussion following these tragedies and trying to find some motivation, trying to find some reason that this happened, the blame is most often cast on the inanimate objects or the weapons that are used. Uh, These weapons are access to these weapons that are the problem. Um, Now, could there be some, some legislation and and, and ways to think about this, and I, I think certainly there could be. And we need to be thinking about and supporting those efforts to, to sound the alarm when it needs to be sounded for access uh, to certain things. But these weapons, be it guns, knives, pipe bombs, whatever, they are powerless. They, they do not hurt people. They do not sin. It is sin that kills. Sin that indwells 
a person, what a person believes will shape what it is they value. What it is they value will then, will then determine their behavior. So if someone, you know, if someone struggles with... Um, so so it's, it's a person that must be addressed. Think of someone who's struggling with, with uh, gluttony. Uh, and obesity is a problem. We don't address that problem by taking away their spoon or everyone else's spoons. That just doesn't make sense. Or if test scores are down in the classroom, you know, we're having trouble filling in those bubbles, we don't address that problem by taking away everybody's pencil. It's irrational. It makes no sense. You say, well, you know, Brad, tell us something we don't know. Um, that seems pretty obvious, but that's just the point. It's not, it's not that obvious. In a world, in a land, in a next-door neighbor whose heart is hardened by sin, indwelling sin makes us blind and deaf and foolish, unable to actually comprehend reality according to God's design. I mean, this is why a, a fetus on one side of the, of the birth canal that can be discarded at the slightest inconvenience on the other side, the birth can tell, poof, is magically a human being, the breath of life. Um, it, is, it is irrational, um, senseless. And, and that's really where we need to start when we look at a passage like this. The irrationality of this. The senseless sin of the people. So I want us to look at, look at the people, God, and Moses. The people's senseless sin. God's just response. And Moses' plea here. Um, so he mentioned that the people are restless, they're impatient. Um, you know, they didn't know how long Moses was going to be gone. We could give them that. But they knew exactly where he was going. Um, they haven't been in the wilderness of Sinai that long. We could give them that. But long enough to see the Lord's power, to see his provision on their behalf. They didn't have a copy of God's law in every tent there in the camp. We could give them that. But they have heard the voice of the Lord from the mountain. A voice that said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved images. So when they, they make this request of Aaron, I mean, it's, just sort of mind-boggling to us. Our jaws hit the floor. And it's really no request at all to demand that they made of Aaron. Aaron, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Make us gods. And even in this demand, before anything else happens, we see this willful violation, at least of the first and the second command that God has given to them. The God who is has given to them. So this, this spiritual amnesia it seems, to the extreme. They've witnessed the plagues. They have watched the sea part. They've seen the cloud go before them by day, the fire by night. They've heard the Lord's voice. They've picked up manna probably this very day that they make this demand. And yet we hear Aaron make us gods. Now they're familiar with the gods of Egypt. How the people of the ancient Near East thought about their gods. If you could have an object or an idol, then it was thought that that deity possessed that thing, that idol. And Egypt had their, 
their own version. A cow and bull was used pretty broadly as, as an idol, as a god uh, in pagan worship practices. Egypt had their own version of this. The god Apis uh, was in a, a form of a bull. It was a god of fertility and strength. And so when Aaron crafts this one bull, he must have done a pretty good job in making this idol. He said, Israel, here are your gods. Uh, that's it. This is the one uh, that we're going to worship. You know, these are your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and which is really where their hearts and minds are. It's back in the land of Egypt. They're back in Egypt, longing for Egypt in their hearts, wanting to worship as the Egyptians in the wilderness. One commentator said it was much harder to get Egypt out of the Israelites than Israelites out of Egypt. So in their impatience, they act in this irrational Way. They want to secure God's presence on their own terms rather than waiting in obedience and the terms and conditions that God is giving to Moses at this very moment that this is happening. The terms and conditions that they need for life and blessing with God in their presence. Maybe you've seen a little boy or a little girl, they're watching the electric train go around the circle, but it's not moving quite fast enough. It goes by and you know, it's on the other side of the track, and there the transformer's right in front of them. And well, all they have to do is reach out and push up the handle, pour on some more juice. So it reaches out and they push up the handle, and the train starts to speed up. And it gets faster and faster, and right before it hits the turn, it derails into a marvelous crash. Taking matters into their own hands disastrous results. The Psalms in more than one place uh, recalls this event as a warning uh, to God's people. Not to forget, but remember the Lord's mighty deeds. Here's Psalm 106. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. The Apostle Paul uses very similar Language in Romans 1 to describe the idolatry that's bound up in the hearts of humanity. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. You hear the irrational language there? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Some believe that Aaron never actually intended to do this. He didn't really intend to make an idol. So, you know, that you know, the, the people had asked him to make this gone. He thought, well, maybe by asking them for gold, that would put a stop to it. Like, they, they wouldn't turn over all their gold to actually fashion an idol. And then, well, they do. They take their jewelry and say, here, Aaron, here's all this gold. So then he's sort of forced, his, his hand is forced in, in going along with this uh, in making the idol. Um, we don't know exactly how this played out, but it's clear that the that the pressure Aaron was receiving gives in to what the people want, not what it is they need. A lack of resolve and courage, certainly, on Aaron's part, who seems to know, which we'll learn next week in verse 22, he seems to know that this was a bad idea, that this was not going to go over well. But then he said, well, maybe he's trying to salvage this train wreck by building an altar. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. He uses the Lord's covenant name. You know, maybe some, some sacrifices and feasting with this calf in the background kind of 
keep it in the background. Uh, well, verse 6 you know, tells us what happened here. They got up, they offered burnt sacrifices, offerings of fellowship uh, to this idol. And that's where uh, the party starts, as they rose up to play. The term there often used in the Old Testament to refer to some caressing, even sexual play. Now, nothing here to really indicate that this was kind of the wild orgy that it's often made out to be. It doesn't have to be that type of behavior. But this term is also used in several places to describe a form of mocking. So in essence, the people got up and they teased. They mocked the Lord with their behavior. This self-gratification. Using elements of true worship, they were sacrificing, but for their own purposes, for their own means. Human gratification over the worship of God. I was thinking this last week, celebrate, I think that's the right word, celebrated or acknowledged 50 years since that series of concerts known as Woodstock in New York. Some of you were around during Woodstock and can enlighten us. Maybe it's more to the, the attitude uh, surrounding that. But the message was, you know, peace. Peace, man. Um, make love, not war. Not war, you know, on the outside, and certainly not war on the inside with sin. Whatever floats your boat, dude, do it. This self-gratification. Okay, nothing new in 1969, nothing new in 2019. we got Woodstock right here in Exodus 32. We'll take God on our own terms, our own making, not on His authority. Another commentator made this connection. It's really telling. We see here a reversal of the creation act in Genesis 2.7. The Creator God forms and fashions man from the dust. Now the man seeks to form and fashion God from the dust. And if we are forming and fashioning gods after created things, as the people have done here, who is really God? We are. The people are. It puts the people in control. They're the ones calling the shots, worshiping according to their own uh, rules, standards. So it's not only a distrust, but it's a great distortion of the way God is to be worshipped. So we need to look in the mirror now as the church, as God's chosen people on this uh, pilgrim journey, just how irrational sin can be. I think the deeper we look, the more we're going to find that every sin is irrational. I mean, to think that we know better to turn away from God's good commands. We're a creator who loves us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, has rescued us, we wanted nothing to do with Him. I mean, that is senseless to turn from that. And we're talking the smallest lie, I mean, the envious thoughts, thoughts of greed to the most heinous crimes that make the news real. We distrust the wisdom and goodness and grace of God. So, you know, if we're casting stones at the people of Israelites here in the wilderness, we need to sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing some more. Prone to wander, prone to leave the God we get, prone to forget the God that we love. Sometimes it does not take long. Uh, my, my wife is learning the, the ukulele, and she's a pretty quick study. She's had the thing for like two months and can, it already sounds uh, pretty good. 
But every time she picks up Petunia, the ukulele, she has to tune. Um, and sometimes it seems like she's tuning this instrument for as long as she's playing it. Um, our hearts must be tuned, must be calibrated to the commands of God, the true worship of Him, or we will, not maybe possibly, we will slip into this idolatry and false worship. We don't have to try to do that. It will happen simply um, by not tuning, keeping watch over our hearts. And so we find the people here using the gifts of God for their own gratification. I mean, Aaron is using the gifts of, of gold that, uh, that the people have received from the hand of the Lord. Makes a pretty nice idol out of them. That's not faithful stewardship of the gifts that God has given. So we need to use the gifts, treasures, talents that God has given to us for His glory, not for our own. Now, now this is where we need to, to pay special watch. Okay, the things that you are really good at, the things that you enjoy doing, maybe, maybe there's something that just comes natural for you. This is where you're in the most danger of idol worship. Worshiping the gift and not the giver. So you're really good at a certain subject in school or you're a really good writer, good with words. Maybe you're able to manipulate a ball really, really well. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Maybe you're just, you can put any ingredients together and it tastes wonderful. Um, this, this is where you need to be watchful. Uh, if you're not watchful, that, that's where you'll put your identity. You need to worship those things instead of giving thanks to God and continually turning them over as an offering, the gifts that he gives. So Aaron struggled here, just chipped away at his resolve until he couldn't stand the pressure, pressure we all face uh, in this life. Much easier to go with the flow. Much easier to do what's popular and then to do what's right. And one pastor, he said of spiritual leaders that they must have unfailing courage and uncompromising conviction. That's true of all of us on this road. I mean, if, if the world, the flesh, and the devil want to keep us enslaved in Egypt, we need courage. We need conviction that the God who has delivered us and united us to His Son knows the way, that He will go before us, that He'll keep watch. Just think about, you know, I'll pose that question to you right now. Are you, are you feeling some pressure? It could be at the office, it could be at school, it could be in the home, to do something that does not have you know, the smile of God upon it or His approval. Are you feeling that pressure? Another thing we can apply here, and we really have to move on, but just looking at the impatience of the people. Impatience and distrust led to this mess. We grow impatient. Now I'm really speaking from experience. We grow impatient. We want God to act at a certain time and in a certain way. And so we find ourselves not trusting Him to provide. We find ourselves not trusting Him to heal the way that we desire, in the time frame that we desire. I mean, we're ready to move on, kind of get out of this wilderness. But it may be the wilderness that is exactly where He wants us right now. We must wait. Trust Him. 
I mean, waiting is such a big and important part of the Christian life. So the Lord has finished with his instruction that he gives to Moses. And then he says this word, go down for your people whom you brought out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Do you think that caught Moses' attention? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> My people that I brought out of Egypt? I don't think so. Time out here. This would have been frightening to Moses. Because he knows full well who brought the people out of the land of Egypt. And, and just the language here, the, the people are not claiming God with their actions. And this, this language, God is communicating, they're, they're not worthy of being claimed by Him. He makes no claim upon them. So this, this really demanded a swift response uh, from Moses, no doubt. Um, again, a short amount of time, weeks perhaps, they've no fear of God before their eyes. And this is the first time we read in the Bible of that language stiff-necked, being a stiff-necked people. It's going to be used a lot more to describe God's people going forward. But a stiff-necked animal would not wear the yoke that the master had for it. It would not submit to the master's commands. So these people are already refusing to wear the yoke of obedience and submission to God and all of his holiness. So I hope we see here that it would be entirely just and right for God to wipe these people out and to start over. It would be entirely just. They have denied their deliverer. Okay, do we hear some echoes here of earlier in the story? I'm thinking of Genesis. I'm thinking of Genesis Chapter 6, where God cleanses the earth of sinful humanity, graciously starts over with Noah and his family. It really is a wonder that we have anything past Exodus 32 here, because this was it. I was thinking of uh, the closing scene of The Karate Kid, which is totally giving away my generation right now. But the end of The Karate Kid and Daniel, you know, he's up there in that pose, you know, ready to do his swan kick or whatever it was. And the leader, the instructor for the Cobra Kai student is standing there saying, finish him, finish him. That's the word we read here. Uh, That I may consume them, complete, accomplish. Let me alone, Moses, that I may finish them. That's the language. So before we consider Moses' plea here, let's, let's see clearly that God is not mocked. He does not stand for, he cannot stand for sin, for idolatry, the worship practices that do not show obedience to him or exalt him in worship. The Lord speaks through his prophet to the king of Assyria. He says, Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. And then Paul says to the church later, the church in Galatia, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Again, I'm thinking that the language of Romans chapter 1. If we sow disobedience and idolatry, we will be turned over to the fruits of that idolatry. Um, And that fruit will be bitter. It will only bring death. But the Holy One of Israel gives more grace. His patience, His mercy abound to His people. Even this people who have so irrationally 
turn from him. By the very language God uses, he opens the door. He invites Moses to intercede. He says, let me alone that my wrath may burn. It's an invitation for Moses to go nowhere. Because if he does, the people are finished. At the end of verse 10, just by mentioning the covenant that the Lord made with Abraham, that's Genesis chapter 12, that would be the strongest reason for Moses to say something. God is allowing, no doubt expecting, this dialogue with his servant Moses. So think of how Moses could have responded to this. You know, it's not like the people have treated him overly well. They've distrusted. They've grumbled against him. I think if most of us are Moses at this point, we're saying, okay, Lord, go for it. I'll just step off to the side. Years later, the prophet Jonah, he camped out on a hill and he, he overlooked Nineveh and he looked forward to God doing that very thing. Do you remember what was going on with Jonah? God has, has a warning, a message for Nineveh, Nineveh through Jonah who delivers this message very reluctantly. You think, well, why so reluctantly? Because Jonah knew something about God that if he brought this message of destruction, it opened the door, it was an invitation for repentance. And if the people did repent, (laughs) Jonah knew that God would relent, that he would show mercy. Jonah did not have the heart of God for these people, which was a heart of of mercy for them. But Moses responds differently. He steps through the door, intercedes for the people in verses 11 through 13. You notice when we read these verses, Moses did not defend the people in any way. Uh, He knows full well that they deserve to be wiped out. So his appeal here is to the character of God, to the promises of God. So while the people are profaning the Lord's name, Moses is actually concerned with guarding the Lord's name and exalting it. And his appeals in four parts, I can only mention them at this point, but he appeals to the Lord's affections. These are your people. These are your treasured possession. Your chosen ones. He appeals to the affections. Then he appeals to the Lord's investment. It took great power, might, to deliver them from Egypt. His power was on display. And then he appeals to the Lord's reputation. The Egyptians are just going to laugh. You're just going to mock if the people die out here in the wilderness. Finally, as the Lord opened the door in verse 10, um, He appeals to the covenant promise. The Lord made a promise to the patriarchs that He would deliver His people. He would bring them to the land. So in verse 14, to continue this anthropomorphic language, it's just what the Lord needed to hear. He want what he wanted to hear from his servant. He relents from the disaster that he had spoken. This doesn't mean there won't be consequences. We're going to learn that next week. But he will not consume them. So 1 Corinthians 10, it tells us these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So this story is for us, for our instruction, for our warning, for our praise. One of the obvious questions 
from this passage is, does God actually change his mind? Does Moses think of something that God didn't think of you know, in this conversation? Does God actually decide to do something that he was, or decide not to do something that he was going to do? And the answer is clearly no, and it would be quite frightening if it were yes. If God is sovereign, he is sovereign, he knows all, there's nothing that surprises him. So even in that, it's important for us to keep the character of God in mind as we're reading the scriptures. It really helps us in our understanding. Our God is unchanging. And so the language here of consuming the people is something that he never intended to carry out. So well, why does it read like this then? Because God gives us this language to, you know, slap us in the face, to grab our attention, to make a point. So there's a shock factor in using this type of language, and the point being that God is unwavering and consistent in how he deals with his people, how he deals with humanity. He hates sin. He cannot, sin, sin cannot be tolerated, and it will be judged. God is consistent in this. And He's even more consistent, if that's possible, more consistent, more abounding in His mercy. He's looking for ways to show mercy and compassion for those who repent and turn to Him. Mention the story of Jonah. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock, he brings out this point. He says, how cloudy would be His blessedness if it were changeable. How mercy would lose its luster if it could change into wrath. Jehovah's everlasting strength and His mercy and holiness endure forever. He never could, nor ever can, look upon iniquity. So God is entirely consistent. He's going to do exactly what He says He will do. Jeremiah 18, 6-10 is a really helpful passage in this that I'll commend to you. It's precisely because God does not repent that Israel is still around after Exodus 32. That was the conclusion of Dr. Legan Duncan. God is faithful to His covenant promise. He will see it through because of who He is, not because of who Israel is or what they've done. So does it make sense to pray then? Why even pray? If God's just going to do what, what He's going to do. Of course it makes sense to pray, and this is a wonderful example of that right here in Exodus 32 with Moses. Our prayers aren't going to change the mind of God, but He will use our prayers to bring about his purpose, to bring about His will. He's glorified through the conversations with Him and the dependence that that requires in prayer. He will answer our plea for those that we love, for ourselves, for His church. Act according to His uh, infinite wisdom. So let's allow Moses to, to teach us, to inform our prayer life here. Our pleading, our intercession should focus on the Lord, on His reputation, on the glory of our God. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to Your name. Give glory, says the psalmist. That should be our posture in prayer. Not just throwing up requests that we, we think will help protect our safety, our comfort, our security of our own earthly kingdoms. We want His name to be revered. His glory, His mercy to be praised. We need to trust the Lord. Praise Him for His mercy really not forgetting what He has done and continues to provide. You know, the people had the law. We have the law of God written 
on our hearts. But what they needed was a law keeper. The perfect law keeper. Someone who could do what they could not do for themselves. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, Moses, to your people. And later he would say to his son, go down to the people. To all those whom I have given you. It's Jesus. The true and better Moses who pleads for us. I mean, the Son of God knows the Father's heart. He knows the depths of His mercy. You can spend time, much time in John chapter 17, just reading the plea of Jesus to the Father for you. God delights to show mercy. Does not treat us as our sins deserve because He has treated His Son as our sins deserve. And as that mercy just pierces our hearts, through faith, it will demand nothing less than our allegiance. Careful watch over our lives. That we would not so quickly turn aside. And that, that mercy is going to be an extension um, to all those around us. Let's praise God for His mercy. Lord, we exalt Your name in this moment. For You are a merciful and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So easily, the story comes to an end in Exodus 32. You do start over. But Lord, you are faithful. Lord, help us when we cannot trace your hand to trust your heart, that you are unchanging, that you are consistent. Lord, we thank you. Guard our hearts. Keep us ever watchful. And we not turn so quickly after those idols that will pop up moments from now. Guard us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, our true and better Moses, who pleads for us. Amen.